0: Welcome to the Second Chapter podcast. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy. I hope you're enjoying listening to my conversations with amazing women smashing it after 35 as much as I'm enjoying having them. This week, I'm speaking with Marsha Ledford. Marsha started her professional life as a civil rights attorney, something she calls her subverted call to ordination. In her 40s, Marsha finally answered her calling and joined the priesthood, continuing her mission to empower the voiceless through her organization, Political Theology Matters and advocating for people of all faiths to join in the public debate to find just and inclusive solutions to our social crises.
1: There's an expression coined by the great mystic Henry Nowen. He talks about being a wounded healer, taking the wounds that we suffer and extrapolating the wisdom and knowledge that you gain from those experiences and then using that to help others. Hi, Marcia, how are you? Thanks for joining me today. Oh, I'm very well, Kristen, thank you. And thank you for the invitation. It's nice to be here.
0: So, I think you've just been back from a holiday, is that right? Yes. We're all longing for holidays here. Tell me, where, what did you do?
1: <laughs> <laughs> we have two very dear friends, David and Doug, who live on the big island of Hawaii.
0: I did not expect that. <laughs> so, this was like a holiday holiday. Amazing. This was a holiday that holiday.
1: So nice. Yeah, especially given COVID and all of that. And so they bought a serious fixer-upper about six years ago. And we went down that first year. They would take a couple of months and go down and work on the house and then come back to Michigan. So we went down to help them tear out the kitchen and start over. And so we've had a vested interest in the place the, the whole time. And they have mounds of old lava that are several hundred years old, and they built a lanai around it. So they carved around in the lanai. And when you have a a convex Mm -hmm. bit of lava, it's called a puka. And their pool is a great big puka. It's made out of lava. Wow. Yeah. Okay.
0: I'm completely living vicariously through you. (laughs) That sounds so nice. And to go and help. So then you just invitation for life.
1: Yeah, I, I I think we already had one, but that certainly sealed our very longstanding friendship. We were very lucky to be there. We had a great time. And you seem very refreshed. I just mentally just tried to really let go of everything. And I think I was pretty successful at it. And it doesn't hurt that the, there's a six hour time difference. So it makes it very hard to try and stay tied to the Eastern U.S. business day when you're that far away. So that was good.
0: Amazing. So you're here today because you started out your life as a civil rights attorney, have gone on to become a theologian, Episcopal priest. And that's obviously quite a change, at least in my mind, it's quite a change. But how did you end up as an attorney to begin with?
1: Becoming an attorney was actually a subverted call to ordination for me. When I was coming of age in the late 70s and early 80s, I was not seeing women at the pulpit and the altar. I sensed a call to ordination as a kid, but I just didn't see a place for me at the table, as it were. And so I decided to go into law as a means of helping people because many of the things that lawyers and pastors do have commonality. There's a lot of counseling. There's a lot of advising. Um, And so it seemed like a good fit. And I was very interested in the Constitution and still am. It's still one of my great loves, the American Constitution. And also then, as I came out as a lesbian at this time, I was especially sure (laughs) there wasn't a place for me. An ordained capacity in the church. I wasn't sure there was a place for me at all. So, so that's what happened, and I am very glad for that experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I've been able to be a part of many amazing cases and experiences, but I grew increasingly frustrated that I couldn't argue the gospel in court and expect mm-hmm. to be successful. So. That was, you know, that was also the Holy Spirit refusing to let me duck out of the call that I think has been placed on me. And uh, this Holy Spirit just kept poking me and bugging me. (laughs) And I finally relented in my late 40s.
0: So going back a little bit, though, I mean, you mentioned being a lesbian and you also Mm -hmm. mentioned, well, you said about Michigan now, but you were born and raised in Detroit. Is that correct?
1: Correct. Correct made in
0: detroit (laughs) made in detroit proudly made in detroit
1: yeah my dad worked for gm i'm considered a gm brat like an army brat and linda my wife is a ford brat
0: well that sounds are (laughs) those kind of brats allowed to get together
1: (laughs) oh yeah yeah absolutely the the poor american car companies have had to put away some of their differences to Participate.
0: (laughs) The reason I ask about both of those things is obviously civil rights being Detroit and civil rights with the LGBTQ plus community. As far as that sort of path as an attorney, how much did those two aspects of your, your life have to do with civil rights as a profession?
1: Oh, a lot. Civil rights was always at the fore of my legal practice. Linda is, her job is dedicated to investigating discrimination in the workplace. So we both have been, our, our entire working lives have been dedicated to civil rights. And of course, we have always been informed by what it's been like to be severely marginalized in American society because of our sexual orientation. There's an expression coined by the great mystic Henry Nouwen. He was a Roman Catholic priest. He talks about being a wounded healer, taking the wounds that we suffer and extrapolating the, the wisdom and the knowledge that you gain from those experiences and then using that to help others, help them either get past a similar experience to yours or something related, maybe not quite the same. And certainly racial discrimination is something that I have never experienced, but I understand what it's like to be marginalized and to be treated as other or second best or whatever. So I can use that experience and now reading and training and understanding to work towards greater racial justice. So they're all tied together.
0: Yes, and I think once you... I don't know, this is just my opinion, but once you are ready to fight for any sort of justice, you have to be ready to fight for all justice, because how can you say, we deserve to be treated with respect if you're not willing to treat others with respect?
1: Absolutely. So
0: you also mentioned not having a seat at the table as a woman or feeling like you had a seat at the table. I know legal there were legal things with being a priest that changed around that same time, but Mm -hmm. having a seat even at the table as an attorney at that time as a woman, was that balanced did you see good
1: examples? I I did not have too many problems practicing law as a woman with most judges. I had a judge tell me once not to come back to his courtroom unless I was wearing a skirt. Oh, I was going to say, was was that to do with a woman or was that to do with your argument? (laughs) And it could have been the other one too. But anyway, I had a few of those. I, I had more trouble with opposing attorneys trying to intimidate me than I did, say, with judges. But the Michigan Bar actually, I think at this point, has more women as members of the bar than men. And we've always, at least during my practicing years when I entered the bar, we've always had a significant number of women attorneys and judges, including appellate judges. So I, I can't say that it was really, it wasn't terrible. Let's just put it that way. Okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting because I feel like so many people I've talked to, depending family pressures or jobs that they originally were going into, Mm -hmm. there wasn't always, sometimes it was more difficult than others. But Mm -hmm. I definitely think being able to see a role model or see that there were other people that were practicing probably Mm -hmm. is a helpful thing. Right.
1: I also didn't do the traditional get a job in a law firm. When I graduated, I started my own practice.
0: Is that unusual? I mean, you said you didn't do the traditional thing, but that seems a really bold move.
1: It's very unusual. And I did it because I knew that my sexual orientation was going to be an issue, and I just didn't want to bother. Plus, the kind of law that I want to practice, I wanted to help LGBT people. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how that would sit with a law firm because back in the day, it wasn't cool. So... I just decided I would be better off just running my own show.
0: And is that what your law firm specialized in? Yeah. It was, and was was that something, because it wasn't cool, as you say, is that something yeah. that was really niche at the time? So you had yes. good clientele because nobody else was I doing had, it?
1: I had good clientele. I advertised in our local LGBT community and represented a lot of people in a lot of amazing cases. I was on 48 Hours, which is a national news media show about a custody case involving a lesbian mom. I did a lot of, uh, of custody-related stuff because at the time, LGBT parents were basically considered unfit right. because, of being, because of their sexual orientation. So losing custody was a real possibility, and not just losing custody, but maybe losing visitation. So, it's
0: crazy to me because I know that's not that long ago. And it's, it's only- not that
1: long ago. That's right. And gay men, AIDS was rearing its ugly head. And that was a battle because the presumption was somehow they were going to infect their kids, even though over time we realized it was not airborne. We still had to deal with that whole conflation of gay male sexuality and pedophilia, which were often considered to be interchangeable. So those were really big issues at the time. And then I also did a lot of criminal law, some involving the LGBT community. But for the most part, that was just through court assignments for the general population.
0: Obviously, you were working to a higher calling, whether it was whether it was the call that you've now ultimately answered. What was so strong? You said that you were being bugged by this Holy Spirit calling you. Oh,
1: it just would not go away. Because you, you was were an attorney this... for 30 years, right? It wasn't like... Yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> true. But it, it was always there. There was a lot about practicing law that I didn't really like because I, in some instances, people were just basically out to make money. They weren't really dedicated to pursuing justice and perhaps I was being overly idealistic but it just didn't feel good Mm
0: -hmm. I did a lot of
1: juvenile work early on representing abuse and neglect victims and defending juvenile delinquents and it just felt like I was a cog in a very nasty machine It, it didn't feel right so I stopped doing that and I felt like representing adults I was seeing a lot of really beautiful, young, talented, intelligent Black men sucked into what we refer to in the United States as the prison industrial complex. I don't Mm. know if you have that kind of a phrase over in Britain, but it just seemed like all we were doing was uh, churning those kids in and out of the system. And it was very hard for me.
0: I can only imagine that it'd be hard for anyone, though, like you said, a lot of times if people are out for the money, it's not really as idealistic or as important. And obviously, going into the priesthood, you're expected to have an idealistic outlook, I think.
1: St. Paul says being fools for Christ. I I think there's some truth in that, or tools for Christ.
0: (laughs) (laughs) When you did make this change, what kind of challenges did you see? something had changed that made you feel like you could now do this in the Mm -hmm. whole system. But also you were at this point in your 40s. So how did a career change in your 40s?
1: Well, I just, I felt like there was a way to make significant contributions to our society and work for social justice in more positive ways, other than being in a courtroom battle. And one of the problems, even if you're doing constitutional work, is to make systemic change, you really need to change the law. And when you are in court on a particular case, unless you win big, it's, change happens on a case-by-case basis, and it doesn't necessarily pass on across the course of the greater society. And when you need to really deal with racial reconciliation, you need systemic change. When you deal with homophobia, you need systemic change. You don't need one case at a time. Which is why the civil rights movement arose, which is why all of the suffrages that have gone on in this country, layer by layer, to add more civil rights to various populations, happen as big projects. And yeah, so I, I mean, felt it's like movements I could, and it's called a movement yeah, because it needs yeah, to be a movement to happen. Exactly. There was emancipation and then there was the women's suffrage movement and workers' rights. And then we got into Brown versus the Board of Education to segregate the school. So there was an education movement. And that was a beautiful example of needing a landmark case to make huge impact immediately across the board. And most people don't realize this, but you as an American will appreciate this. The Brown versus Board of Education case that desegregated American schools was a unanimous decision. And just how significant that is in 1954.
0: Yeah, because it's uh, the Supreme Court is certainly a battleground at this point, I guess I would call it politically. So the idea it's that there was just, anything anybody could all agree on is pretty impactful.
1: Yeah, especially that. Yes, very true. Which, I mean, racism is at the very root of American society. So yeah, I thought by working in the church, I wouldn't be bound by necessarily influencing social justice only through the change of laws and policies as we can appeal to people's moral compass.
0: And as far as the actual nuts and bolts of you becoming ordained as a
1: priest? It's, an, it's a 70, about a 75-step process. They're numbered 45, but all of them have little, you know, inside steps. <laughs> so there's a lot of lot of stuff you have to do, go through, to be vetted as an Episcopal or Anglican priest. Did you ever say, Yes. <laughs> do I need to be? All of us, if we're honest, say, Okay, I'm not su- so sure about what I'm putting myself through, what's going on. And
0: since you've been ordained, or, or as part of becoming ordained, how has what you were doing with your civil rights and with your practice changed? What are you doing now? And what communities are you working with?
1: I'm working, I have a website, and I'm writing a blog, and I have seminars available, speaking engagements. I teach about how the First Amendment works for us as uh, faith-based advocates. I talk about what 501c3 corporations, charities in the United States can and cannot do with respect to political campaigns, candidates, referenda, all those kinds of things, how we are free to speak our faith in the public square, and it doesn't violate the separation of church and state. So I've found that intersection of the gospel and particularly the First Amendment as my, my epicenter and use material and those texts to teach and preach and write and encourage people to get out there and Advocate their faith for more compassionate, effective laws.
0: I'm really intrigued by the whole compassionate and kindness aspect to what you do as well. I haven't lived in the States for about 10 and a half years, and I would say it's only gotten worse as far as the divide between people who call themselves Christian and yet are the exact opposite in my mind of being compassionate or kind. I'm not religious but I'm called to the idea of kindness more than anything. I don't know, how would you speak to what you see going on with people that call themselves religious or Christians and the way that people are behaving with a complete
1: lack of kindness? I'm ticked off. I'll just put it that way. I'm really not happy with how Christianity is being perceived in the United States because of certain corners of the vineyard number one, usurping a a singular interpretation of what it means to be a Christian and morphing it, transmogrifying it into this weird mix of conservative American politics and theology as justification for having very punitive, judgmental, mean treatment of the poor, people of color, it's it's just hard for me to describe how ugly it is. And on January 6th, you know, we see banners, Jesus saves as people are ramming things into windows to get into the Capitol, to desecrate it. And I say desecrate because that's how it felt. It just felt really bad, ugly. I think that we, as a country, need to figure out who we're going to be when we grow up. And I don't mean to sound so dire, but I think it's dire. Uh, we're still within the constitutional guardrails, but we could jump the rails this midterm election.
0: One of the other things that you didn't mention, but I know that was a, a big issue that you worked on as well as immigration. And so all of the kind of, you didn't use the word hate, but I'm going to use it, but just hateful attitudes toward people that are, quote, unquote, not American.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and and not white.
0: And not white. Exactly. So as far as that goes, what kind of work were you doing? Or even now, I know you're working with the Latin population in Detroit.
1: Mm -hmm. I I think it needs to be clarified, too, for your audience that I don't have a church because I'm doing this full time. But I worked In the Latino community in southwest Detroit, which is our largest population of Latinos in the state, we have the fifth largest population of Latinos because Michigan is also a heavily agricultural state. And I think most people don't realize that. We're big producers of celery and blueberries and apples and... Celery?
0: uh, I had no idea. And I grew up in Ohio. I should know that.
1: (laughs) Asparagus. And we have a huge... And so consequently, we had a big migrant agricultural population who would come and work seasonally to pick the harvest. And then after 9-11, it became increasingly more difficult to go back and forth because they would winter in Mexico and then come up for the growing season. Right. So we've got this huge population. And I just became appalled at what I saw being done to families in our name as Americans under our Immigration Act which hasn't been substantially overhauled in 25 years. And it occurred to me as I'm doing this ministry that this is really about color because we have this expectation that we can do and extract whatever we want from people of color, their labor, we can economically exploit them. That's when I decided to write about this and to get a doctor of ministry in political theology, because I felt, again, going back to that idea of systemic change, I thought I could do more and have a greater impact by writing and teaching and speaking and preaching about Racism and immigration reform and any kind of habitual exclusion that is practiced in the American society, I could contribute to eradicating that by learning more and using my voice as a a civil rights attorney and as a theologian. So that was an
0: interesting cross section.
1: Yeah. And I in no way try to equate myself with him. Martin Luther was a lawyer before he became a, a priest.
0: Yeah, I that, was thinking about that because I was thinking it felt rare. But then I thought, wait a minute, I know someone else yeah. who did
1: that. I know other attorneys who also are priests or have studied theology or are teaching theology. It's actually because it's about taking a text, interpreting it, and presenting it to somebody else. It's exa- it's reading yes, a statute, yes. writing a brief delivering an oral argument or taking a section of the Bible and writing a sermon and preaching it to a group. So the crossover is uh, incredible. And I'm a a word person. I'm very much over on the right side of my brain. And I started playing Scrabble in utero. Actually, my mom was overdue and she and her mom would play Scrabble to help her pass the time. And so my grandmother used to tell me that I came into this world playing Scrabble. And a cute story with my grandmother, we were playing when I was nine and that was the first time I emptied my tray. And that was like, for Scrabblers, that's like a big deal. And yeah, I made election. That was the word I made. And my grandmother swore at me (laughs) and called me a little shh, which I thought was awesome. So anyway, so words, I'm always playing some kind of word game. So that that whole translation from lawyering to being a theologian is was a very natural jump for me and for a lot of others. I, I don't know about really- the Scrabble part for them, but... <laughs>
0: Yeah, but words, Scrabble, I don't know. Most of the people I know that love Scrabble, it has something to do with their love of reading or their love of writing and words and yeah. just being an absolute mm-hmm. word nerd. Yep. So it makes perfect sense. Yep,
1: absolutely. I think
0: one of the things that was really interesting to me too, being on your site, like I said, I feel like not being a religious person, there's this resistance mm-hmm. because of Maybe because of bad press, maybe I don't know what it is, but Mm -hmm. it's sort of like, oh, you know, what's that going to be if if it's coming from a religious standpoint? And I Mm -hmm. love that you have what you were referring to a little bit, but you have this sort of page for people that I feel like no matter what your beliefs, if you're looking for something to do to help or to advocate, there's an anti racist, anti racism reading guide, there's a guide to civil discourse. And I really thought about this kind of reaching across the aisle that gets talked about so much in America, which they refer to Mm -hmm. politically. But I thought about it more from even just various religions and various lack thereof, and how coming Mm -hmm. to your site could actually bring a lot of people together that just want to do better.
1: Absolutely. I think humanists can find resources on my website that will help them. Atheists, agnostics, I'm happy to team up with anybody who wants to work for the greater social good. And I'm also a big proponent of ecumenical gatherings, meaning... I was going to say, that was a
0: Scrabble word.
1: (laughs) Ecumenical. (laughs) If if only, it might be just a few too many letters. If somebody played men, and then you could build on that, that would be pretty exciting. And by the way, I just wanted to say, I have my grandmother's board. I I have her Scrabble board. That's what I wanted. So, anyway, we were ecumenical, saying about ecumenical groups, yes. Ecumenical <laughs> coalitions are very important where we get the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the UCC, whatever. And we all come together as a, a group under the banner of Christ. Most major religions, if not all that I'm aware of, have some form of the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And we can build on that. We may have a lot of varying ideas about how to live life, but respecting basic human dignity is present in all the world's great faiths. And so I'm also a big proponent of interfaith coalition building, working together to influence as faith-based advocates from many different perspectives from around the world. And this is going to become increasingly important as our globe becomes smaller and smaller because of the internet and all of that. I live in Southeast Michigan, which is the mitten. If you look on the American map, we're the mitten. And you always know you're talking to somebody from Michigan because we do this.
0: (laughs) Yes, the hand.
1: Uh, (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and we're here. And... Metropolitan Detroit has the largest Arab Muslim population outside of the Middle East. And we have a huge, vibrant Jewish population. So the Abrahamic traditions are represented in force here in Mm -hmm. Southeast Michigan. But we also have Jains and Hindus and uh, Sikhs and you name it, we've got it here. So I would be remiss by not trying to encourage Interfaith dialogue and work together as a means of addressing social policy that helps people move forward with their lives, improve their, their position and their ability to earn a, a, a good living, all of those things
0: my friend yesterday who is a lawyer mentioned to me that she's been working on this magazine as a side project about humanity and how the one of the most basic rights of humanity is the right to earn a living the right to work Mm -hmm. and i Mm -hmm. never quite thought about it that way because you think you want to eat you want to have housing but all of that stems from this fundamental right to work and to be able Mm -hmm. to yeah use what you have to to live which I think right. is really and interesting. Not to be ex-
1: and not to be exploited.
0: Yes, and that's the
1: difference a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah. On another note, I know that, um, <laughs> <laughs> I was like,
0: this is getting so deep, which I love, but I know that you are also an yep. award-winning documentary photographer, which is really interesting mm. to me.
1: Tell me about that. Yeah, I worked at the University of Michigan as a photographer doc- for a while when I was transitioning and trying to fight this call. And so my two areas of speciality are fine art portraiture and documentary. So you go from complete control in the studio to absolutely no control at all in the documentary, which I I think is a really interesting range. And it is so me. And so I decided when the, the Michigan affirmative action cases were accepted by the Supreme Court to hear them that I wanted to cover it. And I thought I could bring a unique perspective as an attorney, understanding the significance of it and the arguments and all of that kind of stuff. So it was, a, it was an amazing experience. I was granted incredible access. I participate, I shot moot court arguments with the attorneys who were going to argue before the Supreme Court. I shot rallies with the students and Jesse Jackson came and I got some incredible shots of him. And I traveled with the administration to Washington, DC. And it was just a, it was an amazing experience. And of course they won the case. So that was a confluence of the gospel and the first amendment for me.
0: Wow. And really taking part of a huge part of history. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I really felt it too. really felt it. That was right up there with Brown versus the board of education. It was an incredible experience.
0: So you mentioned the golden rule, which of course is a really universal quote about how to treat others. But yeah. do you have a quote for me today that you live by or that is that represents you?
1: I, I have two. Okay, so, uh, I can let you, you have wanna, two. <laughs> you want to pick? You want to pick the one you like best? No, give me two. Okay, the first one is we don't get a dress rehearsal. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And the second one is, your silence will not save you or us.
0: Wow. I feel like both of those are so simple, but as a word person, as a theologian, as <laughs> someone who's self-confessed, loves to give speeches, give me a little interpretation of how you take both of
1: those. The first one, I would say, I, I have to credit Linda for this because she has always encouraged this maverick out of the box a, a little bit maverick person that I am she's she's always had the strength and faith and willingness to support me even though I don't really fit in a box and there's just always this encouragement that I'm al- almost always trying something new political theology matters it, the, the mission that I've started is unique And there's no rule book for me to go to to figure stuff out. I'm building the plane as I fly it across.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I always love that visual
1: imagery. I'm just going to put this wing on over here. (laughs) Yeah, just stick this over here. And so it's just a, a reminder to me always that we're given a finite amount of time on God's green earth. And it is up to us to do our very best. And we don't have time to fiddle around with practicing. We just got to get out there and do it. Yes. And silence won't save you. That is about being bystanders in life and not engaging. There were people in our community, in the LGBT community, who didn't want to speak out and wanted to stay closeted. And I understand all that. I'm not criticizing them for that because it is a very scary world. And it was in my time coming out, boy, it was It's still terrifying, but it was different then. You could lose your job and your family in one sentence. But if you remain silent, nothing changes. And that could be with respect to yourself and your situation, what's going on with you. But as importantly, that applies to others. And once we see something, we can never deny not seeing it. Once we recognize injustice and we do nothing. It doesn't save us. And in fact, I think it has a tendency to make the situation worse. So it's incumbent on us in whatever way that we can. People think that, well, what can I do? These problems are so complex and I'm just one person and blah, blah, blah. I agree with you. The problems are incredibly complex. But even by picking up the phone and calling your elected official and saying, this is what I think is super important because even if they vote the way that you want them to vote, they need those statistics to defend their actions. They need to say Mm -hmm. X percent of my constituency agrees with me that this is important. And so that's why I voted this way. Even just one phone call or letter or postcard is important And of course, we can graduate to other things as we gain experience and confidence, or we can continue to write letters and make phone calls. And that's good, too. But just staying silent and doing nothing is almost as bad as contributing to the problem itself directly.
0: I would even add to it in the sense that staying silent, it could be something just so small. Mm-hmm. You know, you see somebody that you need to reach out to, whatever that is, but I, I have the same question. So it's nice that you said that. It's constantly, what do I do as one person? But we can have an impact. However oh, small, yes. it, mm-hmm. all those tiny impacts will eventually lead to something, I hope. Mm-hmm. And right. hopefully, the, the it will be on the side of right and kindness, as we talked about before. So... Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. I will definitely be taking that to heart and making my own little steps every day because I think that's really important.
1: And uh, folks can go to my website and this, I'll send this to you for your show notes, but you can go to my website and there's a one sheet, a downloadable one sheet on the homepage that gives you lots of ideas to do little stuff. I think there's six ways to become a a faith-based advocate and you can download that and pick and choose the ones that resonate with you and just make a little start.
0: Yeah. And all the guides and everything that I was mentioning on the page as yeah. well. I just think even just anti-racism reading guide, what should I be reading to make myself mm-hmm. less complicit in the world that is mm-hmm. very, like you said, punishes people for the color of their skin and what what mm-hmm. can I do to make things a little bit better? So. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing all this with me and for sharing your story. It was really nice to get to chat. And yeah, I feel really inspired to go out and do something, to do something good. I hope our listeners will too.
1: Thank you so very much, Kristen. It's absolutely been a delight. And thank you so much for the work you're doing. I think it's super important. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Mm, Absolutely. Take care. All right. Be
0: well. Thanks for listening. I really hope you're enjoying the second chapter podcast. And if you are, please share it with a friend. I think we all know by now, sharing is caring. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.